Shadow Talk. Hello and welcome to Shadow Talk, a weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in security, brought to you by the Digital Shadows research team. In this week's episode, as the Winter Olympics kicks off, we look into the latest threats. Operation Chow, is it the eye of the tiger or a rocky attribution? And a veritable vulnerability extravaganza. All this and much more in this week's Shadow Talk. Hello and joining us for this week's pod is Raphael. Hello, Raph. Hi, Michael. Happy Friday. Happy Friday indeed. And we've also got pod long-termer Harriet Groon. Hello, Harriet. Hi, Mike. How are you going? Yeah, pretty good, thanks. Pretty good. So today is the first day of the Winter Olympics, and we've talked about threats to the Games in several of our pods before. And in this latest development, uh, there's some new malware that's been associated with the Winter Olympics in the form of a spear phishing campaign. Raph, what's happened in this campaign? Yeah, so the reporting on this is a little bit uh, confused, I'd say, to put it lightly. So this builds on some previous reporting by McAfee, which we talked about in one of the previous pods. So in this one, they're talking about this phishing campaign that they talked about at the end of January. And what they're doing in this new piece of research is basically outlining the different payloads and tools that might have been involved in this campaign. So I'll just highlight some of the names and some of the sort of like features of these different payloads. So the first one that's caught everyone's eye is called Gold Dragon, which is a reconnaissance tool and downloader. The other one's called Brave Prince, which gathers configuration logs, hard drive content, registry entries, uh, scheduled tasks, running processes, things like that. Another one called Ghost419, which again is a system reconnaissance tool, and it's also used for data exfiltration. And the final one is called Running Rat, which is remote access Trojan. So what McAfee have said is that these were likely the second stage payloads associated with that campaign against a number of different organizations affiliated to the Olympics in South Korea. And if you were to choose one of those names for yourself, what would you go for? I'd have to go for Brave Prince, probably. <laughs> It's Gold Dragon every day of the week. They're definitely the running route of the group. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, who was targeted with this? Do we know? So that's the thing. There's no specific organizations mentioned. Uh, The previous reporting in January said that around 333 organizations were associated in this campaign, but they haven't given specific names. Yeah, so I saw some uh, researchers discussing this McAfee reporting actually earlier this week on Twitter, um, and they were questioning the association of the malware to those phishing campaigns that were targeting the Olympics. So from my interpretation of the reporting that was done by McAfee, it looked like they made the link between the Olympic phishing emails and this malware due to the dates that the malware was first detected in the wild rather than actually from doing forensics on a computer that was infected uh, after the delivery of the phishing uh, emails. So I don't think at the moment there was actually an independent verification to support the original research, but I could be wrong there. So maybe send in an abusive email if you disagree. Yeah, I I like the cynical hat on this week, Harriet, and I'm sure there's more to come for that. Oh, yeah. What type of activity are we expecting now the event has started? Are we expecting to see a decrease or an increase? or What kind of thing would we expect to see? I mean, like any major sporting event or just any big large event where millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people are gathering, first and foremost, there's going to be an increase in cybercrime. So we're looking at point of sale, malware infections, um, payment card data potentially being breached or stolen from hotels and restaurants, ATM skimming activity, scams, so scam emails, scam ticketing. 
And this is something that we've seen. We saw at the London Olympics, we saw at Rio, we saw at the World Cup. And this is very typical to any type of event held on this sort of scale. So given that we kind of know what to expect, um, can you have any advice for people traveling to the event? Should they be wobbling card readers to make sure they haven't got any skimmers on it? Or is there a bit more they can be doing? Yeah, I mean, there's the general stuff like that, like having vigilance when working with ATM. So as you said, wiggling card readers. I think more generally something probably better to do is uh, load up prepaid cards as an alternative to using your normal payment payment cards. Another thing that we haven't necessarily detected yet but might come into play is over the last year, we've seen quite a lot of different groups or campaigns leveraging insecure Wi-Fi networks, so public Wi-Fi networks. And as you can imagine, with loads of hotel guests, people logging in at all these different leisure locations and retail locations, uh, what's happened in the past is different types of actors have either stolen Wi-Fi network credentials or have basically managed to intercept um, communications over Wi-Fi networks uh, for their own purposes. So I'm thinking of the Dark Hotel campaign, for example, where they use spoof software updates on infected Wi-Fi networks in Asia itself, in East Asia. And then APT28, who we talked about before, so they've used credentials stolen from Wi-Fi networks to specifically target VIPs and quite high-ranking hotel guests. So what I'd say to any organizations who have individuals traveling to the Olympics or even just traveling in general to any locations where they think they might be targeted is to really think about how you're protecting your VIPs. So avoiding untrusted networks is one. So using a VPN if you're trying to connect to corporate networks, um, reinforcing the whole downloading of apps and using um, trusted, trusted places to do that. So the Google, Google and Apple stores. Um, then also consider having your or VIPs technology and devices placed in isolated corporate networks before the event. And then when they come back, maybe quarantining them for a period as well to ensure that nothing malicious makes its way back into the main corporate network. All top tips from Ralph. Thank you very much. And the second topic of the week, Operation Chow, which I'm sure I've butchered, but it's been an espionage operation that has affected multiple sectors. Harriet, what is this campaign and who has it targeted? I'm glad that you attempted the pronunciation, Mike, because <laughs> I've been trying to avoid it. Um, so this has been quite a wide-reaching campaign. So apparently it's been targeting important institutions in uh, government, technology, education and telecommunications sectors. Um, also reaching across a range of geographies, so, so North America, so both the US and Canada, Russia, countries in the Middle East, Asia, and even Australia as well were apparently targeted in this campaign. Mm. With what tools or payloads? So the campaign used emails as the initial infection vector, um, which deployed Visual Basic and Batch scripts to call for additional payloads um, and profile victim machines. So they actually deployed several second stage payloads. Um, it wasn't immediately clear to me from the reporting whether the second stage payloads were deployed distinctly or simultaneously, but these included a remote access trojan called Ghost. So in this word, the O is written with a zero instead of an O for extra kind of cyber cred. Um, that's, a that's credential harvester. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Um, a credential harvester, Mimikatz, and also a crypto miner as well, which is certainly the malware of the moment. The researchers did profile a command and control domain, and which demonstrated that several variants of the ghost rat were used, and it seemed to be the most highly downloaded second stage payload delivered to victim machines. Wow. And this was, as per the original reporting, this is definitely China, right? Um, 
definitely is a word that I would never use in terms of campaign attribution. Um, I, with the reporting, it's sort of, I'm all about the critical, critical analysis. So just to recap the attribution that was made by the original researchers. So they linked it to an espionage campaign in 2015 called Iron Tiger, which was thought to be associated with a Chinese stateland group called TG3390. So Emissary Panda or ABT27. So they linked it to this campaign because of the presence of Ghost Rat, which was seen in that Iron Tiger activity. So while the use of the remote access Trojan and Mimikatz are consistent with espionage activity, there are a couple of reasons why I'd question the attribution cl claims around this campaign. So primarily, like, why would a state-led espionage group use a Bitcoin mining application? Okay, it was time to run at irregular hours, but it does seem a little bit odd odd that they would potentially sabotage their operation by running a crypto miner because obviously the computing power that those require um, would probably increase the likelihood of detection on victim machines. So, it's, you know, we could hypothesize about why this happened. Maybe it was a rogue person within the group trying to make some money on the side. Maybe they were trying to sabotage the operation from the inside or maybe in the end it wasn't so highly focused as the research is made out um, or it wasn't done by a state actor. So there was also some other sort of questions that... I found when I was reading the report, they said that the initial payloads or the initial infection vector was by highly targeted spam emails. So it is possible that sectors and geographies are targeted over different stages of the campaign, but inherently spam emails, aren't, I wouldn't consider them to be highly targeted. Um, there wasn't any detail about the email lures, so we couldn't independently assess what they look like. But given there's so many sectors and geographies affected, the actors would need to tailor content in multiple languages with multiple social engineering laws for it to be considered as targeted. And if they're doing that, then why would they drop a crypto miner as part of the campaign to potentially disrupt it anyway? And also, finally, Ghost Rat is available, and we've seen it by used by several different actors. So for sure, it's been used by espionage group like Lazarus Group and Tick Group, which is definitely a testimony to the utility of the tool, and its accessibility means that actors can have plausible deniability around their operations. So that means it's really hard to make attribution because it's used by so many different groups, so we never really can tell who used it unless there's loads of other indicators present. So because that was the only link that they made between this activity and the Iron Tiger campaign, for me it was a little bit tenuous. Yeah, just to reiterate what Harriet said, got firstly the issue of a, a targeted spam operation, yeah. something that actually looks quite untargeted from the reporting itself. Then we've got the use of tools that are actually publicly available. Then the use of a crypto miner as well as one of the main payloads, which seems to be, I don't know, I, well, I don't know, we can't rule out a nation state ever using yeah, it. People sure. have said Lazarus Group are going off the cryptocurrency exchanges and trying to steal Bitcoin. Why would you deploy that payload if your aim was to exactly. perform espionage operations? Because that's, as we talked about before, cryptocurrency miners, they affect the computer processing power on their victims. So you would actually realize that there was something wrong with your computer. And if you want to keep access for a prolonged period of time, it's probably one of the worst payloads to put on there. Yeah, for sure. It just doesn't really add up in that way. Like, yeah, it does seem that there were lower infections of the crypto mining application, but still it seems quite kind of... Um, inconclusive to assess it to an espionage campaign or it just doesn't really add up but yeah who knows maybe it still was uh, directed by a state and they had someone on the inside that was uh, trying to do something on the side i'm not sure can't rule we, anyone yeah, anything out in this definitely business. can't rule anything out you're right it feels like we can't really go through any topics on the pod without getting to cryptocurrency mining um <laughs> that is every single week 
Um, and we have had stuff this week that we don't want to go over again to, to bore our listeners, but there's the ADB miner, which has been infecting Android devices. And that's peaked to over 7,000 devices, mainly in China, but also in other regions in the world. Staying in that region, though, let's move over to the vulnerability extravaganza. And there's been a uh, Adobe Zero Day exploited in South Korea. Harriet? Yeah, so this is a uh, memory corruption vulnerability affecting Adobe Flash, which allows for remote code execution, um, which is then used to download a second stage payload. So far, we saw this being used uh, in, apparently against researchers in South Korea, um, and the exploit was hosted within a Microsoft Excel file. It was used to uh, retrieve a final payload of a remote access trojan called Rockrat. Um, there then didn't seem to be that much reporting about the type of information that was exfiltrated from victim machines after they were infected. Most of the reporting was obviously around this uh, zero-day exploit. And do we know anything about the group behind it? So given the malware that was dropped, Rockrat, this activity was linked to a group titled 123. Um, and yes, we have seen them before. So they've been active since around 2016. And they were associated with quite a few campaigns over 2017 and 2018, beginning of 2018 as well. So these were likely campaigns with information gathering purposes. So the group appears to have largely targeted Korean users given their use of the Hangul word processor documents, which are uh, sort of specific to Korea because of their language features. Um, they have used Microsoft Office lures in another campaign which targeted non-Korean institutions. Certainly, they've used uh, exploits in the past, but the use of a zero-day seems to be an increase in capability. And certainly, it looks like over the last year that the group has built their competency up over their campaigns. They are quite careful about their infrastructure as well, so they tend to use cloud-based services like Box and Dropbox um, to obscure their operation, and as well, they use compromised domains too as their command and control infrastructure. Mm. And have we heard anything from Adobe? Are there any patches or updates? Yeah, so they released an advisory earlier this week uh, containing updates, so users running Flash can check the version that they have installed and then update it from their website. Cool. Is that the end of the matter, or are you expecting more in the coming weeks? Well, definitely remote code execution vulnerabilities are really useful for threat actors. I just did a quick search this morning um, to see if there was any public uh, proof of concept exploit codes uh, on GitHub. I couldn't see any. But I did find some other vendor reporting from yesterday stating that they made a proof of concept for um, this vulnerability and it was fairly straightforward to do. So considering this, I would say that it's likely it will be picked up in other operations by other actors as well. But yeah, this didn't seem to be a publicly available um, exploit code at the moment that was on a site like github but something that we'll be keeping our eye on for sure yeah 100 percent. we'll be running scans to try and detect that as soon as we can fantabulous and raf a second vulnerability and this is a denial of service vulnerability discovered in wordpress what is this vulnerability yes michael so a security researcher this week called barack tawili published details of a vulnerability in, as you said, the WordPress platform, which I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of. The vulnerability itself allowed for denial of service attacks against WordPress operated sites. Um, so it could be exploited by any attacker requesting large JavaScript or CS files from a WordPress site. And obviously lots of people use WordPress. Um, does this make it more serious? How serious is this? Yeah, a lot of people use WordPress. I think what 
the reason this might be serious is the simplicity of the exploit and the ease of access to public exploit code. That's really what's worrying here. So the researcher provided a POC here and a YouTube demo for it. They also actually provided their own patch. Uh, but we also have detected a GitHub paste that contained uh, an exploit for the vulnerability as well, which used Python, which, although it's untested, it seems to be quite a simple exploit to use. So I think that's why it could potentially be picked up by other threat actors and used, and that's why it might be actually quite serious. And have we seen any evidence of that? Has it been used in the wild? So the security company in Perva claimed that they detected several attempts at exploitation before the 6th of February, but the details of that are still quite slim. Cool. And there is mitigation available, is there? Interestingly, WordPress actually produced a statement saying that they, well, they implied that they weren't actually going to patch. They said that mitigation should be implemented at the server or network level rather than the application level, which is obviously not ideal. Um, we wouldn't recommend patching using the solution provided by the security researcher as this might cause compatibility issues with WordPress and then users wouldn't basically get any support from WordPress itself. Imperv has provided some of its own sort of recommendations as well to do with access rest restrictions and allowing only trusted IP addresses. What we can say is two-factor authentication applied to the WP admin directory might be useful in this case. All good stuff, and we'll be updating as that story develops. The final topic of this part what to discuss is the in-fraud organization and the arrests and the indictment that's been released. Uh, Raf, do you want to talk about what exactly has happened? What was in-fraud? Sure. So on Wednesday, the U.S. Department of Justice unveiled an indictment from the 31st of October of 2017 against 36 individuals that they've associated with the Infraud Forum, which was a carding forum that had many different iterations um, across the clear web. And I think it had a couple of tour sites as well. And in terms of thinking about the significance of this, obviously it was a big carding forum and there were lots of actors on there that were active in other places as well. But I guess it's worth reminding ourselves it wasn't the only carding forum on the market. There were many others um, that were there. So in terms of the impact this is likely to have, what do you reckon that's going to be? Yeah, you're right. It's always a bit of a case of whack-a-mole with, with these things when law enforcement tries to take down sites. There's just so many that will keep popping up or people will migrate to other ones. So this is, I don't know, this is, this is part of a larger process, I think. So Infraud was a significant player but there are many more forums and ABCs that are still going on. So closing one site doesn't mean that criminal actors will, will basically cease, cease operating. They're probably going to migrate to other places. So the threat to organizations from carding activity still remains despite this quite big operation. And also our research indicated that some sites that were run by vendors on Infraud itself still remain active. There are quite a few different carding sites that used to be advertised on Infraud that are still out there. All very interesting, which wraps us up for the week, but not before we go to you two for a takeaway. And uh, Harriet, what's your takeaway for the week? Um, I'm going to take some liberties here and give you two takeaways this week. So, wow. <laughs> um, so the first one I have is actually about Intel Tradecraft. So from my perspective as an analyst, it's always okay to say if something's unknown or if 
it's unclear and it's really important to question both assumptions and assessments as well when you're doing reporting. And my second one is around attribution. So it's difficult and yes, it's a very obvious statement to make, but this week for me really served as a reminder for how public tools or Trojans or whatever can be very effective for meeting the attacker objectives and really add that layer of deniability to campaigns. So it makes it very difficult to identify who actors are and actually what they're doing. Yeah, and guess also looking at the broader geopolitical situation to inform that assessment as well. Yeah, 100%. Raf, what about yourself? What's your key takeaway? How many have you got? I've got one broad one, but I can split it up into two parts for you. <laughs> That'd be great. I'm, I'm a sucker symmetry. Yeah, I don't want Harriet to take all the limelight. So it relates to the Infraud Forum, which we just talked about. So what's interesting here is how a large proportion of cyber criminal activity actually occurs on the clear web rather than the dark web, which is something I always quite like to reiterate because everyone assumes the dark web is where everything shady goes on. And while it's true, there's a lot of activity there, we need to also monitor the clear web. And that can be just as important, if not more significant sometimes. Aligned to that is what this report and some of our own research reveals about cyber criminal operations. In fraud was not unique in the way it developed. So we've done our own research and Brian Krebs has also corroborated this in his recent blog as well. So Infraud actually started out around October or just before October 2010 on sort of personal blogs on the clear web. So what we often see is that actors begin by establishing a reputation for themselves on lower criminal sites, on their own blogs, by providing advice and tools and sort of reporting on news stories. And then they professionalize their operation and they move up the tiers of the different cyber criminal marketplaces and forums. So from our perspective, for Threat Intel and for investigators, that's really useful to know in terms of how that process works because if they are on the clear web, if they do start out from this, from this level and then move their way up, we can actually chart that progress, which makes it a lot easier to uh, proactively monitor for these things and defend organizations. Fantastic. And that is all for this week. Thanks, Ref. Thank you for having me, Michael. And thank you very much, Harriet. No worries. All right. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. For more research and analysis from the Digital Shadows team, check out resources.digitalshadows.com.